You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. I hope everybody has a seat. It's wonderful to have a sold-out event. Um, my name is Gillian McIntyre, and I coordinate the adult public programs here. And I've just come back from Tobago for this talk, so delighted that it is sold out. So this is part of a series of talks on photography that is sponsored by Penny Rubinoff, and I would like to thank Penny very much uh, for sponsoring this series. It's, it's been excellent. So So this evening, we, w we welcome Stephen Shaw. Stephen Shaw is the Susan Weber Professor in the Arts, Director of Photography Program at Bard College, a position he has held since 1982. Starting his career very young, he was the second living photographer to have a one-man show at the Metropolitan Museum in New York in 1971, and has been active ever since with many solo exhibitions and publications to his name. As AGO curator Maya Sutnik says, he sent color photography into the stratosphere and is an extremely influential photographer internationally. So, Stephen Shaw. I had a very deluded conception in, in the United States of Canadian winters. I <laughs> This is, this is a secret you've been keeping very well. <laughs> I'm going to talk about um, five events that were formative events in my development. And I'm going to start with the last of the five. That was a dinner I had at a friend's home with Ansel Adams in the mid-1970s. When I arrived at the friend's home, Ansel was there and had already been drinking. And w during dinner, I saw him drink six tumblers like this of straight vodka. <laughs> and at one point, late at night, he said, and I remember this, that he, he said it with kind of photographic objectivity. He said, I had a creative hot streak in the 40s, and since then I've been pot-boiling. And I remember thinking that when I'm 85 and having a dinner with a 25-year-old artist, I don't want to look back on my life and assess it that way. So I realized that whenever I found myself repeating myself, I would give myself a new problem and go in a new direction. Because for me, art is solving problems and facing aesthetic challenges. It's exploring the world and exploring the medium of photography. It's not about making beautiful pictures. The pictures are a byproduct of the exploration. Now I'm going to go back in time to the first of the events. And this was when I was six, an uncle of mine gave me a darkroom set made by Kodak for my birthday. 
and it had little hard rubber trays and packets of chemicals and a developing tank and a packet of photographic paper and an instruction booklet. And I uh, taught myself to develop and print my family's snapshots. I don't have any of the prints from that time, but um, here's a picture of, of me at the time on, on the right. And so for about three years, my interest in photography was really just developing and printing. And when I was, a little before, my, before I turned nine, I got my first uh, manually operated 35 millimeter camera. Here's a, a self-portrait uh, at the time. So this was, I would say, the, the second big event. And if you, you can probably tell from this photograph that I lived in an apartment house. I, was, I grew up in, in Manhattan. Our upstairs neighbor was a very cultured man. He was a music publisher. He was the head of a music publishing company called G. Shermer. And he knew of my interest in photography. And so a year later, for my 10th birthday, he bought me, as a present, a book... Uh, American Photographs by Walker Evans, and it could not have been a more important gift. This was the first photography book I ever owned. And I, to say that Evans influenced me, to my mind, is missing the point. It's something deeper. I feel a kind of spiritual kinship with Evans, as almost as though we have similar temperaments. Evans was the subject of the Museum of Modern Art's first photography show, first one-man show, uh, in 1936. It was curated by Beaumont Newhall. Newhall wrote a book called History of Photography. And in one of the early editions of that book, he had a chapter called Recent Trends. And he described four what he called the recent trends. And they were the document, the straight photograph, the formalist photograph, and the equivalent. And what he meant by this was the document was a picture that pointed out at something in the world and said, essentially, look at this. This is worthy of your attention. The straight photograph was the self-conscious work of art that said, look at the, the image on this piece of paper. This is worthy of your attention. The formalist photograph explored the structural qualities of an image and the formal nature of photography. And by equivalent, he, here he uses a term derived from the photographer Alfred Stieglitz, the equivalent is a photograph that stands for, or more precisely embodies, a state of mind or an emotional state. But for me, when I read Newhall, what confused me was that the best photographs, like this picture by Evans of the, Bel the dining room of the Belgrove Plantation, are all four 
they're not one of those trends, that these are not separate things, that the most complex and deepest pictures are all four. And uh, Evans added something to this. He wrote about or spoke about taking pictures in documentary style. And what's implied by this is that he understood that the pictures were not actually documents. He understood the manipulation and subjectivity of photography. He understood how the world in front of the camera becomes transformed by the picture. But he also understood that a photograph can be taken in a style that has cultural reference, that he could adopt a visual style that referenced a vernacular tradition. He saw visual style as a cultural signifier, and in this sense, is, uh, it's almost a postmodern layer to his work. Thomas Kuhn was a professor of history of science at MIT and wrote this book in the 60s. It's this book that popularized the word paradigm, that we commonly refer to paradigms uh, and paradigm shifts is because of Thomas Kuhn's work. He says a paradigm has to have two qualities. It has to be sufficiently unprecedented and sufficiently open-ended. What he means, unprecedented, we get. Open-ended, it means that it has to be fertile territory for future work, that it can be developed by other people. And how does this relate to art? Uh, this is a photograph by a friend of mine named Vic Muniz. And Vic's work strikes me as being unprecedented. But it is not open-ended. If I were to come along and take chocolate syrup and drip it on paper and make a, an image out of it and photograph it, a completely different image, the image I wanted, people would still say, ah, he's copying Muniz. But what Evans did was define a style that allowed for future exploration. To put it a different way, this is an example of a photographer with a vision, and Evans is an example of vision. The next formative event for me was meeting Andy Warhol. I had, when I was 16, I had pretty much stopped going to school. I still was out of high school in New York. Um, I had lots of other interests. I was going to, I wanted to learn about movies. I was going to two movies a day on average. Uh, I was taking photographs. I was interested in classical music and had a job as the photographer for an orchestra in New York that had weekly concerts. Uh, 
I, I just had no interest in school. And, and sitting in classes where people talked about things that were totally boring. Um, I made a short film that in early 65 was, 1965, was shown at a theater in New York called the Filmmaker Cinematheque, the same night that Warhol showed one of his films, the premiered a, a movie called The Life, of, Life Story of Juanita Castro. And I was introduced to Andy afterward. Uh, so to put this into some context, 65 is he was devoting most of his time to making films, his Campbell soup cans, Brillo boxes, Marilyn, all those paintings were done in 62 and 63. And so he was very well known by that time in the New York art world. So after, when I met him, I asked him if I could come to the factory, the name of his studio, and photograph. And he said yes, and I started going, and at that point realized I couldn't maintain the pretense that I was a student. And I mean, I could hang out at the factory and with Andy and go to parties every night, or I could wear my school blazer and sit in these boring classes it was not a hard choice. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't just parties. It, Andy worked every day. Uh, he had a, a four-by-eight-foot work table, and, and he came in every afternoon and, and spent several hours working on his projects. And this was fascinating, because where some artists like to work in solitude... There are other artists who like to have a buzz of activity around them, that they draw energy from the people around them. And Andy was one of those. And to keep people focused on what he was doing, he would be very open about his aesthetic process. And when he was, say, doing the cow wallpaper, he would say, oh, what do you think of this color? And not that he would actually care what a 17-year-old would think of the color, but it was a way of getting people to focus on his work and, and give him this energy. But what it did for me was I got to see an artist making a series of aesthetic decisions continually every day. And it was when I first got a sense of aesthetic thinking. Now, I don't want to pretend that I, I hung out at the factory uh, because it was a, a nurturing and educational experience. It, 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 was, it was fun. And so on and off for the next three years, this is what I did. Uh, so this is what I did instead of going to college. The other thing I recognized in Andy, um, which is something I think that was uh, struck home with me, was what I would call a distanced delight in our culture, a fascination with the culture, um, but at a distance. In 1968, the Moderna Musée in Stockholm did a large Warhol show. Uh, I think it was the, the biggest show he had ever had up to that point. And they did a massive catalog that contained uh, about 165 pages of my photographs. 
and in editing the catalog, um, the the uh, the editor of the catalog was a young curator named Casper uh, Koenig, who is now the director of the Ludwig Museum in Cologne. And he, we met at a loft in Soho and edited the pictures and sequenced them. And when we finished, he said, I have something to show you, and laid out on the floor of the loft Ed Ruscha's book, Every Building on Sunset Strip. And this was the fourth of these formative experiences. It was eye-opening to see a different way photography could be used. This was about the time I stopped visiting the factory and entered a new period in my work. I was interested in, the, in conceptually based sequences. This is the work that made up my show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, although I'm going to show you a piece that was not actually in, in that show. This is called Circle Number One. Uh, I describe a circle, eight, eight compass points around this person in, standing in the Texas, middle of the Texas panhandle. Uh, the direction I'm facing is written on the bottom of the picture. It sometimes happens when you have an exhibition that it brings to a conclusion that body of work, even if you don't intend it to. And that's what the show at the Met did, did for me. And so the show was in 1971, and that year I looked to go in a new direction and was involved in three projects, all involving the vernacular uses of photography, which had fascinated me. One was an exhibition called All the Meat You Can Eat that I curated at uh, an exhibition space in New York called the 98 Green Street Loft. It contained photographs that two friends of mine and I had collected over the, pa over the previous several years. Uh, police photographs, uh, newspaper photographs. This is one that, horrible one that Warhol gave me. Uh, publicity stills. Pornography, a lot of pornography. I had become, that picture I, of circle number one was made in the Texas panhandle I mentioned, in, outside of Amarillo. My closest friends at the time all were living in New York, but were all from Amarillo. And in the summer, I would go back with them. Um, a, a great experience. It exposed me to uh, a part of America that I had never seen before. And I became friendly with one of the people in my circle of friends in Amarillo was the district attorney of Amarillo. Um, and he gave me this huge collection of pornography that had been confiscated by the police department. I mean, this picture was confiscated by the Amarillo Police Department. He also gave me a lot of police photographs. The show contained snapshots, and lots of postcards. I found postcards fascinating because um, they tended to be of very ordinary things and gave 
an often matter-of-fact view of, and, and, and a, I would say a, a less mediated view of uh, what a lot of aspects of American culture looked like. And so part of my fascination with the postcards led me to the third project that year, which was a series of post, 10 postcards of the highlights of Amarillo called Amarillo Tall in Texas. I had somehow convinced myself that the New York art world wanted nothing more than postcards of Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> and I, the best art book store in the city, which was, which was a store called Wittenborn, um, agreed to put up a postcard rack. Wittenborn, when, when I first saw the Ed Ruscha book, I w went to Wittenborn and bought all of the Ed Ruscha books available. Uh, this is where, if you wanted Ed Ruscha, this is where you go. If you, when the band in Hilla Besher first published work in America, this is the store that would have it. It was a fabulous bookstore. So they were going to put a, they put up a postcard rack uh, to sell the cards and. Um, Really, th I, I really convinced myself that this was going to be a, a hot item, and I had 56,000 cards printed <laughs> and didn't sell any. <laughs> so over the years, I would, on my, on my travels around the, uh, North America, I would take these cards and stuff them into postcard racks, thousands of them. Um, but the cards were not... The, the previous card was the American National Bank building, which was the tallest building in Amarillo, and still is the tallest building in Amarillo. But some of the cards were of quirkier places, like this uh, pretty much abandoned Capitol Hotel. So it alternated between real civic monuments that uh, there would normally be a postcard of, the Civic Center, with a place like the Double Dip, which was the, where you would go on Friday night in your car to get a burger and, and a shake. Or Doug's Barbecue, which was the best barbecue in Amarillo. So it played off in a way against the genre of the postcard. Um, now, if you look at this picture, you'll you notice from the building that the day is overcast. But if you look at the sky, it's blue. It's because I, I had these cards printed by Dexter Press, the largest printer of postcards in America, and they refused to print a card that didn't have a blue sky. <laughs> so when I got, without even consulting me, when I got the cards back, uh, the, the, they simply painted the sky blue. Uh, the Texas Panhandle in the summer gets no rain and grass is yellow, but Dexter Press refused. <laughs> they refused to make a card with yellow grass. The third project this year, that's why the 71, and that was all the meat you can eat, the post Amarillo Atoll in Texas, the third project were a series of snapshots. Again, like the postcards, playing off the genre of the snapshot. Um, 
It's called the Micomatics. It's taken, they're taken with a, a camera, a Micomatic, which is a large plastic head of Mickey Mouse with a lens in his nose. And these were sent to a local photo store and printed by Kodak. These were, for all purposes, machine-made snapshots, although they were often of subjects that you, one really wouldn't find a snapshot of. But I was fascinated by snapshots because every now and then one would come across one that felt like it felt natural. It felt, I had used the word unmediated a couple of minutes ago. It felt like a picture made without the mediation of artistic convention, something more direct. And this is something that I, that I strove for. I wanted that immediacy. I wanted the picture to feel what I would call natural. So this was the project that year that held the most future for me, and I wanted to continue it, but I, I had to admit that, that the Micomatic did not have very good optics. And so I got, um, the following year, a small point, it's really a precursor of a point-and-shoot, a Rolly 35. I mean, I had other cameras. I had two Nikons and two Leicas and a Hasselblad, but I wanted a camera um, that that didn't feel intimidating, that I would look like a snapshooter using it. So if I took portraits of people, I, I found using the Micomatic that the camera you use influences the portrait. Because when I held the Micomatic up to my face and took a picture, I always got pictures of people smiling. <laughs> And they were genuine smiles. Um, so I began in 72 a series called American Surfaces. And this work culminated in an exhibition at Light Gallery in New York in the fall of 72. The work, these were printed by Kodak, little three by five inch uh, color prints. Unlike all the other work at this gallery, which was all beautifully presented, these were unmatted, unframed. I wanted people to see, see them as these physical objects, that these were these glossy little pieces of paper. So they were pasted onto a wall with double-sided tape in a grid three rows high covering three walls of a small room. The project began with a, a trip that lasted a couple of two to three months driving across, driving across the United States. And I, I didn't have an exact plan of what I was going to do with, with the pictures, but within a couple of days I realized that what I wanted to do was keep a visual diary of all the meals I ate, all the people I met, all the beds I slept in, televisions I watched, toilets I used, uh, store windows, residential architecture, uh, art on walls. I wanted to explore American culture, but through the, um, 
through the kind of intellectual grid of, of uh, this diary, of repeated subjects. Getting back to something I said a couple of minutes ago, I was also interested in what natural looked like. How, do, how can I make a picture that didn't contain the artifice of visual convention? And what I did to try to understand this was at different times during the day, not when I was necessarily taking pictures, just any time during the day, I would take what, you know, now we, we can take a screenshot of your computer monitor, I would take what was in essence a screenshot of my field of vision. What does it simply look like to look, to stand back and see what the experience of looking looks like? And it could be in all kinds of, just wherever I happen to be, you know, at the back of a taxi cab, in an elevator, and I used this to inform the pictures I made. Now you may have noticed these pictures are in color. And that's not anything remarkable today. But at this time in 72, art photography was black and white. It was the only kind of, well, everything else was color. Television was color. Movies were in color. Magazines were in color. Billboards were in color. Snapshots were in color. It was very hard to get a black and white snapshot made. You'd have to go to a custom lab. Everything was color in photography except art photography and newspapers. And newspapers that was not for aesthetic reasons, it was for economic reasons. So there was this, art, art photography was this holdout. At the time of this show, a light gallery represented a, a wide range of photographers, many great photographers, and one was Paul Strand. And, and Paul Strand and I had lunch one day, and he was an extremely gentlemanly person, and in the kindest most grandfatherly way possible explained to me that higher emotions couldn't be communicated in color. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what would Kandinsky think? <laughs> but I found color fascinating. Uh, one, in the simplest way, it adds transparency. It's, you see, you, you're not stopped as much by the fact you're looking at a photograph because we see in color, as simple as that. Um, it adds cultural information. Different ages and different cultures have a, have a unique palette, a palette that is of the place and time. And there had been a number of great photographers who had tried color. Uh, Edward Weston, uh, Cortege, uh, Ansel Adams, but Weston got one box of, of 8x10 color film and tried it, said I don't like it and didn't use it again. 
there, there hadn't really been, these, these people hadn't decided, I'm going to figure it out. My color pictures aren't, aren't good, but that doesn't mean the medium isn't good. It means I haven't figured out how to use it. And devote a year or however long uh, it would take to really get a handle on the medium. But at around this time, in the early 70s, a group of photographers working independently had all begun doing this. Uh, in the United States, uh, me, Bill Eggleston, uh, Bill Christenberry, and Joel, Joel Meyerowitz, and in, in Italy, a photographer named Luigi Giri. So the time was right for, for this transition. And I realized, looking back on this work, that in this roughly year and a half of work, uh, I staked out a lot of the contentual territory that I would explore with other cameras the rest of the decade. I wanted to continue this project, but um, I was dissatisfied with, with the size of the prints. I became less interested in them as snapshots and wanted to make bigger prints. I became more interested in other qualities of the image and found I couldn't enlarge this film. Uh, so I, I got myself a crown graphic, a four by five, four by five inch camera, um, the, an old press camera, the kind you might see pictures of old press photographers like Ouija holding thinking that I would handhold it and continue this, the American Surfaces uh, project. But I found, well, there was no reason to handhold a picture like this one, so um, I put it on a tripod and found, to my surprise, that I loved working on a tripod and looking at the ground glass. Uh, the back of the camera is a piece of ground glass and you see the image upside down and backwards and you see it with extraordinary exactness. And working on a tripod makes all of the decisions the photographer makes extremely deliberate. Do I want the camera here or do I want it here? And noticing the differences. And so with this camera... Working on a tripod, uh, I began another one of my series of cross-country trips. This is now in 73. One thing I discovered using this larger negative was that because of its descriptive ability, I didn't have to move in close to something that was of interest, but I could have lots of different points of interest in the picture. And this allows for a different relationship of the picture to the viewer. Rather than it at pointing at some, something, um, it's creating a little world that the viewer can move their attention around and explore. Excuse me. Uh, so once I realized I was going to be using a camera on a tripod and carrying a big bag of film holders, 
I thought, why am I using a 4 by 5 Why don't I go all the way and get an 8 by 10 So I borrowed a friend's 8 by 10 camera. So the camera's about this big. It takes a negative about like that. And went to Easton, Pennsylvania, because that's the closest place to New York that Walker Evans had photographed. And I made this picture. And I know that I remember when I was making this picture and looking at this huge ground glass that I had found the tool that I had been looking for. And in reference to what I was saying before of, of, of allowing a viewer to discover things in the picture, I don't know how clearly you can see it on a PowerPoint, but in the window over here, there's a sign, which I know you can't see on a PowerPoint, but is absolutely clear on a print that this is a dentist office. And there's a little boy sitting in the window with his breath fogging the glass. And this is something that is absolutely clear on a print, but it's, a, it's one little facet. It's not the whole picture. So with this camera, I began a two-part exploration. One was exploring American culture. For example, here's a view of where a 19th century New England industrial town comes to an end. And also, I was ex using the camera to explore formal qualities of the image. As I said, working on a tripod makes all the decisions crystalline and conscious. And so, for example, in here I'm thinking about how three-dimensional space is collapsed onto a picture plane and creates spatial relationships like the relationship of, of this light pole to this building. The pole is perhaps 10 meters in front of the edge of the building, but on the print, they, they sit next to each other and bear an exact relationship, as does this pole with that edge and the fire hydrant to that edge of the building. Uh, photographs are filled whenever you're photographing three-dimensional space, they're filled with these relationships. So this is the kind of thing that was on my mind. Also, I was amazed at the tonal quality of the image. Um, you used to be able to set computer monitors at 256 colors and thousands of colors and millions of colors. And this is exactly the difference between a picture made with a small format camera, like a 35 millimeter, a medium format camera, and a large format camera. The large format camera has millions of colors, and so that it just has a different tonality. It's not just sharper, but it's luminous. And I realized that 8 by 10 color was, for me, the technical means that photography had of communicating what the world looked like in a state of heightened awareness. Now, I had mentioned how three-dimensional space collapses onto a picture plane. Uh, and you can see it in this picture in lots of places, like 
uh, this, by the way, in part of this trip in 19, this is 1974, I drove on Route 1 across Canada. And this is in, uh, this is taking a broad street in Regina. Um, this to this, the woman to this pole, this light to the top of the building, a, continual relationships exist. This is one factor that I was exploring. But there are four main transformations. The transformation of a three-dimensional world flowing in time into a photograph. Um, the world is dynamic, a photograph is static. So these people, might, okay. these people are frozen in motion. Um, the world is boundless, a photograph has edges. So relationships are created because of the edges. There's the relationship of this curb to the edge, uh, these lines coming into the side, this arch, all of these relationships mean something because of the edge. Um, and the fourth transformative factor is focus. And so the focus is on this couple here. Focus adds a hierarchy to the space of a picture. Only one plane can actually be in focus, regardless of the depth of field of the picture. And so we're taking a world that doesn't have a plane of focus, it's just out there, and we have to, because of the optics, place a plane of focus somewhere. So these are the four basic tools that any photograph has. And I say any photograph, I'm not talking about what makes a good picture. I'm saying, I mean, I'll give you a really stupid example. I have a little camera that is called a cat cam that, I can, that is made to be put around the neck of a pet. And it takes pictures automatically every two minutes. So it's taking these random pictures as whatever the whatever your cat or I put on my, one of my dogs is looking at without any consciousness, obviously, on their part. But all of these qualities I'm talking about, the frame, the, the, the transformation of three-dimensional space into two dimensions, the, the freezing of a moment in time, um, the plane of focus, all of that exists in one of these pictures. Now, the following year, I started playing more with structure and wanted to make pictures that were structurally denser. More of these visual relationships to play with. I was also interested in the question, every now and then I would see a photograph that would have a convincing illusion of three-dimensional space. And I wanted to understand how that was created, how on a, on a flat piece of paper there could be a, this illusion of three-dimensional space. So I, I took this picture in Los Angeles at the intersection of Beverly and La Brea. Again, 
trying to juggle as many visual relationships as possible and to create, use formal means to create the illusion of three-dimensional space using one-point perspective and um, vertical lines in tension with the edge and diagonal lines coming into a corner and objects jutting in from a, from a side, other different ways of, of trying to figure out how to create this illusion of three-dimensional space. But as I was taking this picture, there was something unsatisfying, which is I realized I was imposing a very classical structure on this, on this scene, that rather than trying to understand the structure of the scene itself, I was imposing something that was essentially Claudian. It was a 17th century solution to a 20th century problem. So I went back the next day with the aim of taking a picture that was as carefully made but with an attempt to make it look like I almost did nothing. And so the rest of this trip across the country, I alternated between these very open, very loose pictures and very complex, dense pictures. Uh, I, I was living in Manhattan and didn't own a car. It just is a pain in the ass to own a car in Manhattan. So I'd rent cars. And rental cars didn't, in those days, have tape players, tape decks. And so I was listening to a lot of very bad Top 40 radio, which got tiring after weeks. And so I would amuse myself by reciting different speeches from Shakespeare. And one that made a huge impression on me was from Hamlet. Hamlet invites a group of actors to his castle, Elsinore, to put on his play, and he gives them an acting lesson, which begins with a description of the relationship of form to content and ends with talking about the essence of meaning. Suit the action to the word and the word to the action with this special observance that you overstep not the modesty of nature, for anything so overdone is away from the purpose of playing, whose purpose was and is first and last to hold, as it were, the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. So it begins, as I said, by talking about the relationship of form to content, suit the action to the word and the word to the action. These are not separate things. Form, structure, 
is not art sauce poured on top of content. It is, it is a clarification of content. It, content can't exist without form. It's like, can you talk about language without grammar? He makes a plea for what I would call transparency, overstep not the modesty of nature. And then he talks about meaning. Now, drama and literature and film are much better at dealing with virtue and scorn than photography is. But this last phrase, to show the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure, that I found fascinating. By 77, I had come back in a way full circle of taking, going on this journey of, of taking apart, of dissecting every structural quality of the camera I could think of and exploring it and coming back to a point where I could use this camera very consciously to take pictures that were as simple as my 35 millimeter work. In the late 70s, I moved out of New York and moved to the West, eventually settling in Montana for a couple of years. And, but I found myself, as I would go through towns to photograph, I would find that I, would, I knew where to stand. I would walk into a town, I would know where to go, I could solve the problem of an intersection or solve the problem of photographing the building without even thinking about it. In other words, I was imitating myself and I thought about my dinner with Ansel Adams. I had developed strategies for dealing with different situations, but now I needed new problems because I didn't want to simply repeat myself. So I was interested in the land and the landscape. I was, as I said, living in Montana. But I also knew that I had the perceptions of an Easterner who grew up in the city and didn't have the, the kind of perception I had if I walked into a city or a town to photograph. So I lived there for two years before I started photographing the land and hiked on it and cross-country skied on it and fished on the streams and tried to get to know it um, to, do these, to begin to deal with something uh, more, more physical in, in dealing with the land. But there was one problem, one aesthetic problem from the 70s, we're, we're now in, in the early 80s, um, that still was on my mind. And that was this idea of creating an illusion of three-dimensional space. And I could do it in a city where I had a lot of, a lot of structural complexity. But the question for me was, 
could I do it in an open piece of land that didn't even have trees? So let me ask you to do this experiment. Take a look at this picture and pay attention to the foreground and move your attention along the ground without skipping over anything all the way into the space of, back along the ground all the way to the horizon. And as you do this, does anyone have the sensation that their eyes are changing focus? That you're literally focusing on something further away? Anyone? This I find fascinating because you're looking at a flat movie screen. And let me tell you how I understand this that there is another level on which we understand pictures, and that is the mental image we hold of the picture in our minds. Let me be clear. Uh, all we ever see is a mental image. Our eyes work very much like a digital camera. Light is focused in by a lens onto the retina, which acts exactly like a digital array, a digital sensor it converts the light to electrical signals. And in our brains, our mind takes the electrical signals and converts it to an image. I mean, ex really exactly like a digital camera. And all we ever see, all you're seeing now, is a mental image. What I began to understand was that a photograph can contain clues to help a person create a three-dimensional mental image. And the sensation of changing focus is moving your attention through the three-dimensional mental image. And then on top of this, I wanted to, com to continue my interest in landscape, add the a different, slightly different understanding of the relationship of earth to sky. So having worked this out in the land, I wanted to take it into other situations. I was fascinated by traditional cultures and the remnants of tradition. So in, in 91, I did a series of pictures in the Yucatan of Mayan villages, which were going through uh, a very accelerated cultural transition. Uh, people living in houses that structurally were unchanged since the, the style of the house was first built in probably the year 800. Uh, and, but now they're electrified. Uh, the grandparents living in these houses didn't even speak Spanish, they only spoke Mayan, and the grandchildren didn't speak any Mayan and wore Nikes. And so this was a, a culture that was rapidly uh, transforming and perhaps vanishing. what I found I responded to was something elemental in the culture that I would continue to look for for several years afterward in other situations. 
I also realized that this quality of focus that I've talked about is a conduit for experiencing other subtle levels in a picture. At this point, in 1991, I realized that I had been working exclusively in color for 20 years, that when I started, other than the handful of photographers I mentioned, no one was working in color, and by 91, almost no one was working in black and white. And the part of my mind that is that questions convention saw, just as I saw black and white, the adherence to black and white as a convention, I saw the adherence to color as a convention. And so decided that for the next 10 years, I would only work in black and white. This picture, this series of pictures were, were made in um, a small village in Italy called Luzzara in the, the province of Reggio Emilia. Paul Strand had photographed here exactly 40 years before for his book Un Paese. And I wanted to show the mixture of tradition and contemporary life. I was also interested in archaeology. Again, thinking about both the remnants of tradition and something elemental. And got myself permission to go on several digs, uh, two in Israel and one in Italy. This is this first group I'm going to show you is from uh, Ashkelon in, in Israel. And the next site is Akalea in Italy. Well, uh, while I was on this dig in Italy, uh, I was accompanied by a, a, a good friend and a great Italian photographer named Guido Guidi. And he gave me, the camera I was using was a, a camera called Deerdorf. It's the brand name. And he gave me a wooden slide that was made by Deerdorf years ago that would cover up half of the negative. So you would make a two four by 10 inch negatives on one sheet of film. And so since he had given this to me, I thought I have to put this to use and figure out what to do with it. And again, wanting to do something completely different and giving myself new aesthetic and almost logistical problems to solve, I decided to do something that is almost impossible. One of my favorite photographers, one of my great heroes, is a photographer named Gary Winogrand. I've always admired his work, although my work was, is nothing like his. And I wanted to see, he photographed on the streets of New York and LA and, um, I wanted to see if I could do New York street photography, but with an eight by 10. And so the next series 
These are done with an 8x10 camera on the streets in New York. I mean, this is a camera that's, again, this big on a tripod. Um, and when I'm focusing, you focus the camera without filming it. So I'm focusing on nothing. None of these people that you see here were in the pictures when I was focusing. But it allows me to make prints, very large prints, with incredible quality. So unlike street photography done with a 35 millimeter, uh, this, I print these roughly three, three by eight feet uh, because this is great quality of an eight by 10. When I took this picture, when I was in this scene, on 57th Street in Manhattan, a policeman came up to me and said, uh, you're a photographer. I thought, yes, that's right. He said, uh, that's an eight by 10. And I said, that's right. He said, I use a four by five. I said, oh, really? And so we started having a conversation. I would continue working and take pictures of, on the street while we were talking. And at one point, he asked my name. And I told him, he said, oh, I have one of your books. And I show it to my family. And they think your pictures are boring. But I tell, I tell them they don't understand. <laughs> so while I'm taking these pictures, the person who has this car parked there, which is illegally parked, is, comes out and is about to move his car, and the policeman stops him. <laughs> he stops him from moving his illegally parked car because he knew, knows it's an important formal element in my picture. <laughs> this project ended in 2001, and that ended my 10 years of black and white. So I looked for new questions to explore. Uh, at this, digital, had, digital cameras started becoming smaller and smaller and better and better. And I thought that at this point, I had been using an 8x10 for almost 30 years and as the only camera I was using and that I had finally earned the right to use a camera that I can put in my breast pocket. And so got a, a point and shoot and began a, also taking advantage of, of new technology. Uh, made a series of print-on-demand books. And this is a project that lasted five years. Each, I mean, I, ever since I first saw Ed Ruscha, um I, I loved artist books. And this print-on-demand gives everyone the uh, ability to, with great ease, do, do their, to do small books. Each of these books I made was made in one day. Rather than it be a collection of the best work done over a period of time, it was a day's work. But it wasn't just the best work of the day. It, since I was... I was photographing knowing it was going to be in a book. So I was photographing thinking about how each of the pictures would relate to the other pictures. Also, the books were fairly short, 10 to 20 pictures usually, so that they could be kept in mind all at once, that they would be seen as a single complex work. 
uh, a large book, a retrospective book, a book with 100 pictures. Going through it is like going on a journey. But these were not like journeys. These were work that when you got to the last page, the trace of the first page was still in your mind. Here's another one. Uh, this was taken on a plane as it was landing in New York. And the books have different structures. For example, this one, as you'll see, is very linear in structure. What I mean is one picture follows the other in a linear sequence. When Jillian introduced me, she mentioned that I'd been at Bard College since 82. Um, and one of my goals as a teacher is not to get people, to, students to take pictures like mine, but to help each student find their own voice. And that means if I have a class with 10 students, I want to think of what is the next step that each of these 10 students needs to take the unique step for that unique person. So in a way, I have to think like 10 different photographers. Uh, some of the books, I took pictures of, of mine that I had large digital scans of and re-edited them. So after years of teaching, I found that having to address this question I mentioned of thinking like the different people, as though I were each of them, and thinking what is the next step, that in a way this exercised my creative faculty, and that rather than just see Stephen Shore pictures when I looked out on the world, I saw more different kinds of pictures. I saw more possibilities. And I saw things that I might not want to spend a couple of years pursuing. I might want to spend a day playing with. But these books gave me the opportunity of doing just that. Uh, one series I did was whenever the New York Times ran uh, a six-column banner headline, a day of an important news event, I would do a, uh, a book that day as just a kind of time capsule or a marker. Sometimes I would start working without a clear idea in mind. So um, for this book, I started photographing at uh, the weekend flea market in Vienna, but quickly saw that what was fascinating were, uh, were representational objects that were being sold. And so, as I mentioned before, I'm photographing with a book in mind, and so after a couple of minutes, my photography started taking a more definite direction. So as, so as I'm working, I'm thinking about how the book is developing.
and not just, in this case, representational objects, but representational objects that often have a particular uh, Germanic character. And here, I'll show you one last one. I, over this period of time, this, this is made in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, one of my favorite, you've probably gotten this by now, it's one of my favorite places in America. And I keep going back there and still find it a fascinating and beautiful place. Uh, over this five-year period, I made about 83 books that I'm happy with. And in fact, the next book of mine that will be published uh, by Fiden will be a catalog resume of, of all of these 83 in complete over 2,000 pages. Um, I'm going to show you one last group of pictures. One of the things I, uh, I find fascinating about digital is that the new cameras can produce an image that couldn't have existed 10 years ago. The higher-end digital cameras can produce a picture that I can make a print you know, this size that is as sharp as um, and as resolved as a picture made with a 4x5 view camera. And yet it's the size of a 35-millimeter camera. And this kind of goes back to what I had talked about when I was transitioning out of American surfaces and got the crown graphic, this desire to take pictures that uh, have the, the portability, the flexibility, the spontaneity of a handheld camera, but have the resolution of a much larger instrument. And finally, in the past couple of years, this has become possible. Uh, this is, I've, I've been involved for a, about a two-year period on a, a large project in Israel. So I'm going to just end with a series of pictures from this project. Um, and the work is partially inspired by um, the, my fascination with the, this new kind of image that can be produced. This one I could have made with the view camera, but this one I couldn't have. As I said, this, this project covered two years, uh, perhaps, I think, six trips, all told. And that's it. Now, I, I will be just delighted to answer any questions. I know I've run a little bit longer than the gallery had planned, but... But it was way too good to stop him, so... <laughs> just try to so, stop so him. So let's, let's just have two or three questions. We have portable mics that we'll bring to you if you let us know where you are. I can see one there. Kathleen, can you... I had a question on the 8x10 um, work. 
uh, particularly the buildings, do you did you uh, care about correcting perspective when yes. you were shooting? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll I'll answer it in greater depth. I also create I also correct perspective on the digital work. Uh, you didn't see a lot of architectural pictures there, but when I do architectural work with the digital, I can do the same corrections easily. Um, I had mentioned that 8 by 10 creates a different relationship between the print and the viewer in that rather than it being like seeing through my eyes, it's a little world I'm creating. And if you think about that, then the skewed perspective is more like the experience of seeing, and the corrected perspective is like building this little construction. Does that make sense? And that, that's why I did that. I do that. Uh, what the question is referring to is the the eight by ten camera has controls that you know when you look up at a building and it looks like the building is receding. There are controls that'll that allow you to adjust the lens so that that doesn't happen. That's what that is referring to. I'm um, I'm interested. You said sort of you talked a little bit about Gary Winogrand and Gary Winogrand being one of your heroes. Yes, he's one of mine as well. Um, but I'm interested in sort of very late Winogrand when he sort of shot all of that and didn't develop it and. And what, what do you make of that? And do you think that, that he would have changed his perspective in digital and sort of if you were doing sort of counterfactual in terms of that work? Uh, that's interesting. I never heard, no one's ever asked that I, uh, about how he would have responded to digital. Um, I want to hold off judgment on his last work for a year because there's going to be a big show um, at, uh, it'll be in, I think, in San Francisco and then at the Met, um, where the curators are going very carefully over his last negatives and doing a, a much more careful edit than, had, uh, than was done for the very last, the last show of his at MoMA. Um, so I, I think what we, from what I've heard, what we've seen so far is not a real indication of what there is. Um, that said, I'm not sure he knew what there was. I mean, he was about three years behind in his processing. So, I mean, think, think about that. He's going taking pictures, and the stuff he's been developing is stuff he shot three years before. Uh, and so your question is really fascinating. What would happen if you were, if you were using digital and seeing the results immediately? Uh, I, I don't know. One more. Right here. Wait, wait, wait for the... Maybe after this you can take one more question. I just wanted to know what is this digital marvel you're using now? Oh, a, a Nikon D3X. Although Nikon is coming out with new cameras in the next couple of months that sound very promising. I'm seeing a last question up there. 
Uh, hey, um, I was wondering if you could like expand on the 3D effect you were talking about before, because it's something that's like um, very important and interesting in my photography. Yes, gladly. Um, when you were looking at the picture, did you have that experience of, uh, that where it felt like you were actually changing focus in your eye? When you look at any, anything, like right now, two things are happening simultaneously. One is you're moving your, as you move, say, your attention from the back of the head of the person in front of you to me, your eye is automatically changing focus. And you, in the mental image you have of this room, which I've already gone into, in, in the three-dimensional mental image you have, you're moving your attention through that space. And these two things happen simultaneously for your whole life. So that in terms of your experience of sensation, they become inseparable. And so because they happen all the time, except, for example, when you're dreaming, then you can actually move your attention through mental space without your eye necessarily changing focus. Um, that all we see is a mental image is why dreams are convincing and why we can have hallucinations. It's all the same stuff. Now, if all the years of your life, every day, every time your eye changes focus, you are changing a focus of your attention and these sensations become intertwined, the experiences become intertwined, you, when you were looking at the picture and thinking your eye was changing focus, it felt like your eye was changing focus, but actually all that was happening was your attention was shifting within the mental space. Um, is there something more specific I can tell you? Uh, no, no, really. <laughs> Because it's, it's, a, it's a very broad topic, and I know I alluded to the focus being a channel for other perceptions. The easiest one, the most matter-of-fact, is, is space. But I'm convinced through looking at other people's work and through my own experience that many subtle qualities of a photographer's perception if they're an experienced photographer, can be imprinted in the picture. That, that um, essential qualities of their state of mind can be communicated in the picture through these same means. Uh, let me also, uh, because I think this is important, uh, I'm going to answer you in a little more depth. Uh, how it happens is, is perhaps simpler than you might think. Um, the decisions you make as a photographer, if either conscious or, or unconscious, are governed by what you pay attention to and how you pay attention to it. If you pay attention, if you're going to take a picture of 
of me right now and imagine a frame. That's one picture. That's one picture. But if I say, okay, you're looking at me, but now pay attention to the lectern and the screen behind me and the wall and the stage I'm on, the frame of the picture is going to slightly adjust for what you're now paying attention to. Does that make sense? And so the, the, what you're paying attention to begins to in, have a deep impact on the subtle decisions of the picture. And they'll be slightly different pictures, but they will communicate these slight differences on this level that I'm talking about. Thank you very much for a really fascinating, fascinating talk. I found, my, I found myself fascinated not, not just with the formal elements of the, the photographs, but on, for me, the comment on the societies that you, you, know, that you live amongst and you know, just your view of them, just really, really interesting. So our next talk in this series is October 14th, 17th, sorry, Wednesday, October 17th, and it will be Martin Parr, who I believe may have been influenced by Stephen Shaw. Just to very quickly tell you the other things we have, in going, have going on in April, coming up. April 4th, we have Ian Baxter-And, whose exhibition we currently have on the fourth floor. On April 11th, we have Josh Nelman, who's written a book called Hot Art. And on April 14th, we have a symposium called Exceptional Minds, which is the convergence of mental illness and creativity in the 21st century. So, with Kay Redfield-Jameson as the keynote speaker. So... Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.